Good morning. Please get your Bibles, if you can, and turn to Judges chapter 6, especially if you're watching online. Please get your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 6. Um, we have some here and many that are at home, and I know that some from different parts of the world watch in, so that's wonderful. And we're going to continue with the series that we start, started last week, which I'm calling The Awakening Church. And it comes out of, obviously, Judges chapter 6. It's the story of Gideon. And it's one of my favorite Old, uh, Old Testament stories. It's, I would say, one of my life messages. And there's so much in the story that, yes, it's applicable to right now, to what just everything that's happening around us. But it's, it's always applicable because it's about, if I had to summarize, the returning to the Lord. God's people, they forget God, as you see throughout the Old Testament, and then they return to the Lord. But this story... I love this specific story because you see the weakness, you see the truth, you see the battle, you see the doubts, you see the process, you see the victories, and you see the corporate people, then you see the individual, and you see the differences, and that you see a, like a Christian experience of people that are searching and seeking for the Lord, and you see how God begins to work with groups, God begins to work with a person. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful narrative. And it can apply to, you know, the individual heart. So, you know, as we go through it, we've already done one week, but there will be things that will jump out to you. Please take that one thing. Don't, you don't have to try to understand everything and remember everything. Take the one thing and let God begin to work that one thing into you. But it can be for the individual heart. It can be for the church globally, for a local church, or for a nation because they all represent it here. So I, I trust it's going to be helpful to you. Um, so last week, you can turn there if you can. If you're online, please do turn there um, for Judges chapter 6 so that you can follow along. And um, we laid a bit of a foundation last week. And the first week, sometimes, because I've done this series before, it's a little bit difficult, sometimes a little bit tedious, because you're laying a foundation of... Um, what it means prophetically. You know, we look at the Old Testament through New Testament lenses. And so if you look in Judges 6 verse 1, we'll read a little bit. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. Now, Midian means strife. And it delivered them there for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites, the children of Israel, so that's the church, the children of God, made for themselves the dens and caves and strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, that the Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites and the people of the east. They would come up and camp against them, and they would destroy the produce of the earth. And then it says they would come up with their livestock in verse 5. They would come up as numerous as like a swarm of locusts. They would just come in and completely devour and then it came to pass, in verse 7, it says that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, and the Lord sent a prophet, and he began to speak to them about certain aspects. So I explained all this last week, but prophetically, you look at this, how does this apply for us? The, the children of Israel here, Israel is the church, it's you, because the church is people. Israel is us, my heart, the church. Midian, the Midianites here, and we went into the history last week, and you'll, you'll see it actually represents the culture, the system of the world that we're surrounded by. But remember, in today, we don't fight flesh and blood. We don't come against people, but we come against principalities, powers, and forces of evil. There are, there are, the supernatural realm 
that is behind some of the things that are going on. And so the Midianites represent the culture, the culture, the system of the world. We have to understand that. And you can look at it last week if you want to go look, and we go into how that comes about and why that is. And you see how Israel has done that before with the Midianites. And then you look at it, it says they would reach out in a sense to the Amalekites, and that represents the flesh man. The law first mentioned, Amalek, was the grandson of Esau. And it's the first birth. It's the person we all born on the earth with a sinful nature before salvation. And when you get saved, God makes you brand new. And that, that's the flesh man. That's Amalekites, the flesh man. And then the people of the east is overwhelming voices. They would come in as numerous as locusts. Who knows what it's like to have an overwhelming voice, you know? Over, it just feels overwhelming. And so it says that whenever Israel had sown, you know, you sow the seed. That could be a revelation in your heart. It could be, it doesn't have to be this big encounter, but you sow the seed, which uh, Mark 4 says is the word. And so they would sow, they would sow so they could do, get, bring a harvest. And in a sense, the Midianites, those three would group together. And they wouldn't come to wait for the harvest and steal it. They would just come to destroy. And that's exactly what we see today. Where, you know, we sow, it's like a subdued church. That's what we covered last week as well, what it is to be a subdued church. It's a church that's sowing. There's lots of activity. We're doing what we know. But the culture of the world that surrounds us, which is actually set up by the prince of the air, the devil. But we don't realize that it's subtle. It's not... All the, it's not that people are bad, but the culture, the system of the world says, I'm going to reach out to the flesh. I'm going to reach out to the old nature. I'm going to reach out to the flesh. I'm going to partner with that. And I'm going to bring up some overwhelming situations and voices. And together, we're going to take, in a sense, the activity of advancing the kingdom, and we're just coming against it to destroy it. And so what happens is when, that, when they begin to take ground and they begin to occupy, it's like we're sowing seed but there's no harvest. And it's interesting that there's three, there's three there, Midianites, Amalekites, and people of the East. Go look at Mark 4. I encourage you at home, go look at Mark 4. And at home, you can do it now if you want to. It's okay. But Mark 4 talks about um, when you sow, which is the word, talks about the things of the cares of this world which come to choke. It talks about the persecution or the trouble that arise, arises over the word that was sown. It talks about the enemy that comes to snatch it away. It's three there as well, and they're very similar. It's the same thing, same kind of story. So, then it leads, as I said, to a subdued church that hides away. They imprison themselves. We go into our churches. We go into our families. There's no advancing of the kingdom. There's no power. There's no strength in God's people. And it's just, you know, we kind of hide, and, and that's a subdued church that hides. And then a cry begins to develop within God's people. It says they begin to cry out to the Lord. And that's not one prayer meeting. That's, that's a season where a deep cry begins to develop inside of you. There has to be more than this, Lord. There has to be more. And there's a deep cry that develops inside of the heart of God's people. Then the church slowly begins to arise and to awaken as the Lord begins to restore things. So we covered most of that last week, and he begins to restore always his voice first and foremost. He sends a prophet, communicates with his people. He always, you'll see, he wants to speak to you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He restores his voice. He reminds them of the truth of the gospel. Always does that. The power of God is in the gospel. 
He also reminds them to change their focus, where their focus is. And then he reminds them of who he is. So now we pick up the story, and today I want to talk to you about the making of God, the shaping of God, because that's God's response to them corporately. So it's like we have a church, a prayer meeting, or we go to a conference, and people bring words, or people something begins to happen, and God, like really, we felt in the room, wow, God spoke to us. And then you leave there, and you go home, and now there's the personal shaping and making of God that happens behind closed doors. And so we pick it up here, because God will make you. The Bible says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of me. I will make you. I will shape you. I will form you. And the Holy Spirit will move in the heart to do that. And there are some wonderful things we can learn when we see Gideon's story. So, if you can go to verse 11, and it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah. Just, just so we can understand this, Ophrah was in a territory called Manasseh. And Manasseh means to forget. And it's like, you know, in the demonic realm, there are actually geographical areas which are oppressed differently across the earth. I don't want to get into that, but there's principalities, different principalities over each city, over each region. We don't live in response to the enemy. The Bible says we are seated in Christ above every principality and power. So we don't live in response to that, but those is what's dictating some of the systems and the patterns of the world. And so they were, in a sense, living under Manasseh, which means to forget. And they forgot God. They forgot who He was. They forgot who they were. And so God comes to us, and He says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. See, he mentions Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. But the Lord, and the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So, we're going to pull some lessons out of there. Firstly, when it comes to the making of God, it will include encounters. The first thing we see is the Lord comes to encounter this guy, Gideon, this man, Gideon. And that doesn't have to be this. You know, the Lord appears to you. And some major encounter, which, you know, it's, it's your drive in the car to work. And the presence of the Lord comes in the car and drops something in your heart. It's a revelation when you're reading. It's a moment in your, in your devotion. It's a, you go to a, a conference, you come to a meeting. It's, it's any type of encounter where something of heaven, something of the Lord has pierced a human heart. That's an encounter. And they go from small to big is the way we would think. But some of the most profound encounters I've had were not profound at all that I thought at the time. It was one little whisper in the heart. 
And those have, in a sense, over time, changed me far more sometimes than the big encounters that I've been, by God's grace, have had as well. But there was always encounter. And the Lord comes to him and he says, you are a mighty man of valor. Now, I know some of you have heard this before, but if, that, if a human being said that to him, you would look at them and say, you are delusional. Why is he a mighty man of valor? He's not. He's not. He's hiding. He's hiding. So we have to understand that when God begins to speak to us, he speaks our identity into us. He sees things in Gideon that Gideon does not see, cannot see. So he speaks your identity into you. But he doesn't wait for you to be something or to become. He speaks it into you. And when he speaks it into you, something begins to change in your heart. He speaks identity. He speaks who we are into us. And he does this to Gideon when he's insecure. You'll see he has daddy issues. You'll see that's coming next. And most people do. You'll see he's cynical. He says, if the Lord is with us, then why? He's ashamed. I'm the least. I'm the smallest. He's offended. He's doubtful. He's all of those things. And yet the Lord says, you're a mighty man of valor. Speaks identity into him. Now it's good to know that the Lord is not put off. Please hear this. The Lord, to, the, to those at home, the Lord is not put off by your current situation. He's not put off by the state of your heart. Right, wrong, good, bad. He's not put off by the... the, the um, the, the view you have of yourself, it doesn't put him off. And we think it does, but it doesn't. The Lord is not overwhelmed by what overwhelms you at all, at all. It's an amazing truth. The New Testament, I could take a whole hour to speak just on this. The New Testament, when you look at the New Testament, it speaks to the new nature just like the Lord does. We read, don't do this, but do this. We think, oh, it's just another whole pile of rules. He's saying, no, in the New Testament, I've made you new. This is who you are. It speaks to the new man. And we have to understand that. And the New Testament does that all. And it also shows, friends, the, the importance of of the genuine prophetic voice, the genuine prophetic word, to call down identity into people, to speak the words that the Lord is speaking over people, the genuine prophetic voice restored in the church. It's greatly needed now more than ever, more than ever. Then you see that God meets us where we're at. Isn't that comforting? He doesn't say, Gideon, come here. He goes to where he is. Do you ever think about that? And he's hiding. He probably got a fright. He's hiding away, doing something, and this, all of a sudden this guy, and in the beginning, if you look at the Hebrew, he just says, Lord, it's a term of respect. And as the story changed, the term, he thinks it was just some guy. As the, as the story goes on, he calls him one time, he says, Lord, he uses the phrase Adonai. He recognizes this is God. And it's like that with us, right? He comes to where we're at, and we don't even know it's him speaking in our heart. Isn't that my thoughts, isn't it? And then we begin to learn it's the Lord. It's the Lord. 
And that, friends, should remind us of the gospel. Jesus came to where we are, even physically. Why? So that he could take us to where he is. We have to understand that. God comes to this man. God comes to you, always. And how does Gideon respond to this? Because that's grace, right? That's mercy. That's love. God comes to him, meets him where he's at. Just meets him where he's at. Jesus did that all through the Gospels. He met people where they were at. And how does he respond? It's actually funny to me. You know, what does he say? Where are all the miracles? He's offended. He blames the Lord, not knowing that's the Lord. That would be interesting afterwards. Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. You know, he blames. He's offended at God. He blames God. Well, really, well, if the Lord is with us, then why is, why is all this happening? It's a question, age-old question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is this stuff happening in our nation? Why is this stuff happening in my heart? Why, God, if you were with us, then why? You know? And I love this story because God doesn't answer that question. Partly because I think any answer he would have given, Gideon's heart was positioned in a place that nothing would have sufficed. He's offended. He's upset. It's actually the signs of a subdued church where there are entire groups of people who are putting on God what is not Him. That's a sign of a subdued church that hides. What does God do? He commissions him. He says, hey, yeah, go in this might of yours. So he's offended, complaining. God's come to him. God's spoken to the people. God comes to him. Mighty man of valor spoke, speaks identity into him. And then he complains and he's offended. And God says, yeah, okay, go in this might. Instead of, you know, disciplining or shouting him down, he commissions him. You know, to young people, and I say this to the adults, sometimes, not always, I understand discipline, I understand, sometimes they're doing what they do because no one's given them something that they want to die for. No one's given them something that they want to live for. And the restriction that you want them to put on their life will come when that comes into the heart. And so he commissions him. He commissions him, go in this might of yours. That might is not his own strength. He's hiding. Clearly, he has none. It's go in this might, go in this might of yours. Have I not sent you? That's what it says. The might comes from the fact that I've sent you. Have I not sent you? Have I not sent you? Ask you a question Has God sent you? The answer is yes. Have I not sent you? What he's saying in our words is take this how you feel. Take the frustration, the offense. Take, the ish- take how you feel and let it stir you to arise. And go and do what I'm going to tell you to do. Instead of focusing on the wrong stuff. So... What's Gideon's response to mission, to the commission? What's Gideon's response? 
it's, it's a lot of our responses. He says, Lord, I'm the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Do you realize he's not complaining anymore? Because now there's responsibility. And he goes, oh, yeah, no, not me. No, thank you. Why? Lord, surely someone else. Moses did that. Many did that. Surely someone else. I'm the weakest in a weak tribe. In a, in a sense, I, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. <laughs> and many people feel like that. I'm just a nobody. Why? What? Me? People in this room feel like that. People watching feel like that. Because the Lord is saying, Gideon, I don't look at the qualifications that men look at. I don't look at status like men looks at it. I don't look at your pedigree. I made you. I made you. I know you better than you know yourself, and there is a lion inside of you that hasn't learned to roar yet, so I'm going to commission you to bring that out of you because you're a mighty man of valor. That is what he says to each one of us. So what is God's response to the human weakness? I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. What is God's response to the commission, the, the mission, the, the sense of he's called us to do something. What is, what is their response? Our response is, I can't. I don't know how. You know that that's actually the point? You know, Joshua, it's, it's a wonderful text, and I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too long. Joshua hears from the Lord, Moses, my servant, is dead. And it's such room for insecurity, because he never calls Joshua my servant. He says, Moses, you know, my friend, my servant. Yeah, he died. So, yeah, now there's you. You know, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. And then he gives him three things to do. Arise, you and all these people, and take them over. He gives him the three things to do that Moses could never do. That's the first thing he's told to do. Do the things that Moses couldn't do. You know, it, it's supposed to be impossible so that it requires him. If there's a commission from the Lord, it's like, yeah, that's easy. It's probably not him. And so he comes to Gideon and he says, what's the response to our human weakness? I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. In our words, Gideon, I'm with you. You're going to win. You're going to win. Why? Because I'm there. That's always his response to human weakness. I'm there. You'll win. I'm with you. You will win. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never. You'll win. <laughs> With him, you will. Then what happens? Let's read further. I don't know if, if you at home or you here, I see myself in this story. I really do. That's why I love it so much. There's so many things in here that are so real and so true. It says here, we're going to read from 17. It says, Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. This is, he's starting to recognize who this is now. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. 
You know, God is patient. I know He's patient because He loves me. And He's patient. You know, it's the f- God is love, the Bible says. The first attribute of love is patience. Love is patient. And he is, the Bible says He waited for Noah. Patiently. He says God waited patiently for Noah. Yeah, God waits patiently for Gideon. You know that God waits patiently for you. And he knocks every day. Hey, 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 I know who you are. 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 I know what you should do. I know what will fulfill you. I, and he waits patiently. And he says, he said, I will wait until you come back. I just, I just every time I read that, I, it's amazing. He says, so Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread and from an ephah, 20 pounds of flour. So he does this whole big thing, right? The meat we put in a basket, he put the broth in a pot, he brought them out to him under this terebinth tree where they were before and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. So Gideon does this. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose up out of the rock and consumed the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. It's a good response. You know, it's a good response. But it's also there because there was a belief in the Hebrew world that if you saw God face to face, you would die. And theologically, I don't want to get into it. Most commentators, that says the angel of the Lord is speaking of the Lord here. That's why he had that reaction. He realized, I've seen the Lord. So that's why he says, peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still, well, not today when this was written, it is still an Ophrah of the Abias rites. The Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom is one of the names of God, one of the great revelations of God in the Old Testament. So if you look here, Gideon doubts, like each one of us. People don't like saying that, but it's true. We all do it. It's actually part of the process. Why? You've heard from the Lord. He's told you who you are. You've become a little bit more, I know who I am. I know my identity in Christ. You know, I can, you know I'm learning to hear the voice of the Lord. I, I'm learning to understand some scripture and, and God. And then, and then the Lord speaks to you. There's something he puts in your heart, something to do. So, and then the doubt comes, Lord, is it you? That's what's happening here. Lord, is that you? Is that you? So what does he say? What must I do? I must, I must do something. So he says, all right, I'm going to bring you a sacrifice. Did God ask him for a sacrifice? No. Uh-uh. What did Samuel say? God desires obedience more than sacrifice. He could have just taken God at his word and gone. But he didn't. So the sacrifice was to, he doesn't want to look like a fool. He doesn't want to fail. He doesn't want to be wrong. Is it you, God? And so there's a cost now. 
that in a sense the Lord didn't ask for. And he's like, yeah, okay, uh, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. And you know, friends, that's okay. That's okay. Because he's learning to hear the Lord. He's learning, God, is that you? And sometimes we feel, gee, there's all this like, cost. And yes, it will cost you to follow Jesus. But sometimes we bring sacrifices. We cause things to ourselves he didn't never ask for. He just never asked for it. But Gideon said, it, it must, I have to do something. Does this make sense? So, he keeps knocking. Then, the greatest moment, he reveals himself to us. Gideon built an altar there, and you see Jehovah Shalom. God is peace. God is peace. As I said, it's one of the names of God in the Old Testament. Now, why is this? There's a process here. Why is this so important? Well, that's worship. David hadn't come yet. There's not music and harps and stuff yet. This is sacrificial worship. It's the form of worship they had. So there's this whole process, this impersonal encounter. For you, this could be literally all of this is in the heart. It's in the drive to work. It's in a devotional. There's something that God begins to do in your heart. There's a walk of faith. There's a, there's a battle. There's a wrestle. And then God, the most important, the, most, the whole story on the, God reveals himself to you. I am this, or I am this. I am the God of peace. Now, why is that important? Well, God restores worship in the land. No one was worshiping God. So he restores worship. Gideon builds an altar, and worship is restored. But let's pause now, because this is what happens in our own life. We get so into our thing in the Lord, us in the Lord. But this is exactly what happens. Even as we read the story, we get into Gideon's encounter, and it's good. It teaches us so many things. But now let's pause and zoom out. Why? What was the purpose of it? To destroy the Midianites. To actually take ground. To actually do something. It wasn't just about him and Gideon. The purpose was to remove the enemy off of their land and out of their hearts. That was the purpose. So what does God reveal? I am peace. What is happening in the land? There's war. They're at war. And God says, I'm peace. And so Gideon worships the Lord according to who he is, not what he's done. Nothing's changed. On the outside, nothing's changed. Still oppressed, still under the Midianites, still sowing with no harm. Nothing's changed. But someone begins to worship, one person begins to worship, not from head knowledge, not, oh, I know what the Bible says, in the heart, begins to worship God for who He is when it's a contradiction to the current circumstance that they're in. One man. God's done nothing, in a sense. They're at war. When God's people begin to worship God for who He is, from personal revelation, not from study, from personal revelation, 
within a contradicting circumstance. Victory begins, not before. Not before. Not before. Victory begins. I worship you, Lord. I don't understand. You say you're this. I'm experiencing this, but I will worship you for this from my heart. Victory's about to begin. Everything's about to change because worship is restored. It's the same for us. Now, we're going to go, we're going to read three more verses and I'll make some comments then we'll carry on next week. Unfortunately, many people stop at this point. Many people stop here. They press into God. They have this encounter, this moment, this conference. God invaded the room, the building, my car, my room. It's just a presence of God, the glory of God, even healed my body, changed my heart. This encounter with God. We tell of the encounter, but we stop listening. We tell of the encounter, guess what happened? This amazing revelation, amazing encounter. And we go around and we speak and we tell of the encounter, but every encounter, every revelation, everything that God, it comes for a bigger purpose. And most of the time, it's not just about you. I would say all the time. Because the fulfillment that God has for us is within a context of other people. So he has this encounter, and we stop there, and we tell of the encounter. But God, he hasn't even given him strategy yet. We're like, ooh, I just conference, awesome. He's like, uh, hello, <laughs> hello, hello, I've actually got to do stuff. So let's read. He says, now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock, in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image, which you shall cut down. So Gideon took the men, took men from among his servants, and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, three verses. But there's a lot in there. And this is what happens. There's an encounter. There's something. God reveals something about his heart, about himself. It changes you. It does change you. Worship becomes real. His presence becomes known. Now Gideon's hearing his voice. There's a relationship. And then it's like the Lord says, hey, Gideon, let's, uh, let's put some stuff in order here. Now there's a relationship between him and the Lord. Now you see the inner confrontations of the heart. It's the test. And the entire story hinges on this moment. The entire story hinges on this moment, more than the encounter. Because if he didn't do this, nothing would have changed. So, what happens? I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? Gideon, think about this, 
It's like a soap opera. Gideon has to go and tear down his father's bale, which was extremely expensive to have one. And the, the wooden image, the Hebrew there is Asherah. It's the Ashtaroth pole. It's Asherah. It's another god. And it was right beside it. He says, I'll tell you what, Gideon, go to, go to your dad's house, right? Take his bull. And the Lord is so specific. I think, and there's all these prophetic meanings you can look at, the numbers. And, but I think it's God's like, if I don't be specific, you know, he probably won't do it. So he's like, take the second bull, the one of seven months. And he's like, and he says, take that and take it to your father's bale. Use his bull to tear down his altar. Then you, Gideon, cut down the wooden Ashtaroth pole. Those things were enormously expensive, extremely hard to make if you made it. It was something very precious. It's the golden calf. He says, cut it down. Then cut it up, take, build an altar, take the bull, put it on the altar, and use the wood to sacrifice the bull. I mean, you, you just can't make that up. And Gideon's like, you are kidding me. Like, that's awesome encounter, but what? You know, really? How many of you know when he did it, he didn't feel like he did in the encounter moment? He wasn't like, this is so wonderful, this is easy. No. Not at all. And it's like this now. What is crazy, and I, I won't go into it, who were these gods? And I've got all the names and meanings here, but I'm running out of time, so I'll just tell you quickly. The Baal of Pure and the wooden Asherah. It was the Canaanite and Midianite gods of love, war, and harvest. So God's people, think about this, are worshiping the gods of war, of the Midianite god of war, when they're at war with the Midianites. They're worshiping the Midianite god of harvest when the Midianites are stealing their harvest. That's stupid. That's crazy. And they're losing badly. You know, and we think, well, of, well, of course. But you know, it happens all the time in our day. All the time. It's, can I, it's happening now. Why? It's whenever God's people become enamored with the same things that the world is enamored by. It's whenever God's people rely or put their trust in the same things that the world puts their trust in. It's whenever God's people have the affection of the heart drawn, the distraction drawn, just like the system of the world, just like the world. <laughs> it's anything, friends, anything that we put above God in a way that we rely on this thing to get us out of our current circumstance. That's what was happening. And it happens today. Everywhere. And it happens in our hearts to all of us. And so God breaks into a human heart to remind us of himself. And then he says, now go and destroy that other stuff. And conviction begins to build. And he snatches the affections of my heart the focus of my mind, the sight of my eyes, the work of my hands, 
and he pulls it back to himself. Sorry. It's commonplace, friends, and it never, never leads to victory. Whenever God's people use carnal weapons to try and take down the carnal issues of the world, flesh gives birth to flesh. It just doesn't work. It's a spiritual battle. Even here in the Old Testament, which we say Old Testament, natural, New Testament, spiritual, he had to deal with it spiritually. I think we should stop there. The Lord will bring us to moments where what He's revealed to us, what we know to be true, has to spill over into practical decisions and practical life. And it's an action or decision that others will see. That's what begins to happen. That's what begins to happen. And can I remind us, the Midianites, nothing's changed. Why? God has to deal with the issues within the church, within Israel. He's dealing with the people in the house, turning hearts. He's just put conviction in a man's heart that is greater than his fear. But it says he did it at night because he was still afraid. Why is that so encouraging to me? He was still becoming a man of valor. He was still afraid. But he did it, but he was afraid. So he was vulnerable. He went and found other people, said, listen, I think God's told me to do this thing, but I'm actually scared. Please come with me. Humility, vulnerability, team, partnership, fellowship. That's all right. All right. He's still becoming the man, the identity that God said. He's not there yet, but he did it anyway. We don't have to be perfect before we obey. We don't have to be perfect before God will give us stuff to do. Amazing. Anyway, we'll leave it there. The awakening church, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I encourage you with all my heart, those watching, those here, with everything that's happening in the nation, with everything that's happening in the world, don't employ carnal weapons. They won't help you. Find out what the Lord says. Worship's a key. Prayer is a key. Allow the Lord to deal with the heart and put convictions in there that are stronger than your fears. Can I pray for us at home here? Father, I, I know that's a lot for people to hear. Holy Spirit, I pray that you illumine these things into our hearts, that you bring revelation, Lord, that we take this, the one thing, the one thing, the one truth that you spoke into our heart. And Lord, let us co-labor with you. I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to go into the hearts of people. Lord, we thank you that you are not overwhelmed by what overwhelms us, that you rule and reign.
You have all authority, God. We love you. We trust you. For you are the God of peace, Jehovah Shalom. We worship you, Lord. I wonder if you're at home or even in the building, if you can just open your hearts for a moment, close your eyes if you can, if you're comfortable, and just open your hands. Just do a little bit of business with the Lord. Holy Spirit, I ask that you speak identity into your people. Start to reflect on who the Lord says you are, on how He sees you. That He is with you. That He will reveal Himself to you. That it's okay to have doubts and struggles and at times to be afraid. He is still with you. Speak to your people, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord.